Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 this morning is where we're going to be. It's where we're going to start at least in the first chapter of the book of Isaiah. Again, thanks to the choir for uh, just for your extra effort this morning getting here a little bit early and uh, ahead of everyone else just to uh, sound check and get ready to lead us in worship this morning. And uh, again, good to see you if you're visiting again. Good to have you this morning. Isaiah chapter 1. This, uh, if you were here last night for either of our Christmas Eve services, then uh, you remember the story that I told of, of having uh, just kind of uh, had a little mental block recently, locking both sets of keys in, uh, in one of our vehicles, and that's never a good thing to do. Well, I don't, I don't know what's going on. I told Susan last night, I said, I don't know what's happening to my brain. But uh, I left the church last night after Christmas Eve services. We were set to, to scoot across town to be with family, and, uh, and so I, I was putting some things in the truck, and, and I, I set my Bible up on the, the back of the truck, you know, on the top of the thing. And so I get home, and inevitably, I forget exactly why I was bringing stuff in. I was looking for my Bible, and I couldn't find it. I thought, oh, no. No, I didn't. At least I didn't lock the keys in the truck this time. And, uh, and so I, I remembered putting it right where it was. And so when we left to travel across town, and we kind of backtracked across. Good thing is we lived three minutes away and not all the way out in some other county. And... Uh, and so just to, we came all the way down, uh, you know, up, up Wall Tower, then down Johnny Mercer. And just as we turned a, a left right out here into the church parking lot, there I see my poor Bible sitting out in the intersection right there, pages flapping, just cars going past, you know. And so uh, this is going to end up being my third cover uh, in about 10 years that I've, I've gone through. And uh, I was starting to have fear, you know, because I, I really appreciate this particular Bible. I've got notes jotted in there and all that kind of, you're probably the same way. And so I'm especially grateful this morning to have my Bible. And so I hope you do have yours. And Isaiah chapter 1 is where we're going to be. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Christmas, obviously, uh, is, is what it celebrates, the meaning behind everything that takes place. You know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, I've been a believer, follower of Christ for a long, long time. And everything about who I am today goes right back to that to that momentous occasion 2,000 years ago when Christ chose to come. Everything that I am today, every victory that I've ever experienced, every comfort that I've ever experienced at difficult times in my life, everything about who I am today goes back to that event that we read of in Matthew and in Luke that unfolded that very first Christmas. And whenever we celebrate Christmas, we never want to move away from the, that most important of details. You know, the culture tries to capture that, and the culture tries to replicate, and they try to create excitement and happiness and joy in their own ways. And in some ways, the, the culture does come up, you know, with certain things that are enjoyable about Christmas. For example, the Christmas music, you know, Christmas stations playing Christmas music. That's a good thing. I appreciate it. I'm grateful for that. I'm glad stations go to 24-7 Christmas music for a month straight. I, I enjoy that kind of thing. Well, if you've listened to Christmas radio, to Christian radio or to, to Christmas songs at all for very long, there's one song that stands out above all the others. It is the absolute most popular Christmas song of any that has ever been written, which do you think it might be? White Christmas. Yeah, that song, actually, if you studied it, and I studied this a little bit as, in preparing this message, I didn't know this stuff off the top of my head, uh, I came up with some interesting facts. So that song, White Christmas, of course, Bing Crosby made it famous. Irving Berlin was the one who composed it. He was a very, very famous composer, a number of different works that he's most known for, but he actually composed that particular song, White Christmas, and it premiered on radio 18 days after Pearl Harbor, some 70 years ago now. And uh, through the years... It has become so popular that one song, White Christmas, has been, there's like 500, literally 500 different versions of it worldwide. In fact, CNN 
made mention about 10 years ago in a, in a uh, survey that was done, a, uh, a poll or whatever that was done where they, they looked at these things. And CNN uncovered that it was the second most famous song of all time throughout the course of the 20th century. The second most famous song of all time, only behind Over the Rainbow by Judy Garland had nothing to do with Christmas. It wasn't a Christmas category survey, uh, but it is, it is known worldwide, this one song, White Christmas. And I'd be willing to say that for a good number of you, you've experienced a white Christmas. You know, for those of us that were born and raised in Savannah, only lived away for certain segments of our lives, we don't have the privilege of seeing white Christmases a whole lot. Uh, some of you see it every year. You may be in town visiting, and, try, and, and uh, every year, typically, you have a white Christmas. Some of you have never experienced a white Christmas. But what we look at here in Isaiah chapter 1 is the potential for every single one of us, regardless of who we are, where we've been, what we've done, is for every single one of us to experience the reality of a white Christmas, not from Irving Berlin's perspective, not from Bing Crosby's perspective, not from CNN's perspective, but from God's perspective. And it's in Isaiah chapter 1 that it begins to lay out for us in the setting of a uh, uh, really that begins as an accusation against the people of Judah that this 8th century prophet by the name of Isaiah, 8th century BC, some 750 years before Christ would come, Isaiah the prophet speaks from the heart of God. He speaks to people that had wandered from God. And the people of Judah in this setting were so far from the Lord. They were God's chosen people, but they were so far from God. And you may sit here this morning and you know that you have blessing in your life because God does love you and God does show grace and mercy to every person on the face of this earth. But you may at the same time have a sense that there is something that's not quite right. Well, the people of Judah were God's chosen people, but they were so far from God. Life was not good for them here in this setting. They were on the verge of receiving the just due penalty for their wandering, for their rejection, for their sin. And so what God does, as he often does in the life of those that he loves, is that he sends a warning. He fires a shot across the bow, so to speak. And it's Isaiah the prophet that he uses. And Isaiah begins to speak. Actually, he had a a lengthy uh, uh, decades, 40 years actually, decades long uh, uh, ministry where he he would speak into the lives of the people of Judah, God's people. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. And yet the reality of what he shares here, we're going to unfold it here in chapter 1 as we begin here in just a second is that he begins to paint for them, not in these words, but the reality of, of a white Christmas, of a white life, of what it means to be pure and what it means to be clean in the sight of God. And so pick up with me here in Isaiah chapter 1. Let's just begin in verse 2. And what God begins to lay out here is he begins to lay out the indictment of his people, the people of Judah. And God, as he always does, is very specific and he's very clear. Look at verse 2. He says, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks... Sons I have reared and brought up, he says of the people of Judah, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers. Wow, how how clear God is here. He says, sons who act corruptly, they have abandoned the Lord, they have despised the Holy One of Israel, they have turned away from him. And this indictment was very specific. It was very clear that these people with a spiritual heritage, with a religious tone to their life, we're going to see that in just a second, were so far from God. And God lays out an indictment against them. Why does God indict them? Because God's angry and mad and wrathful and just wants to hurt people and and always pour out his vengeance upon people? Yes, he is a God of wrath, but no, he's not a God who does not love his creation. He lays out this indictment out of a desire to see them respond. Respond and return. 
And so God begins with the hard stuff. And for some this morning, perhaps right where you sit, in these recent days, God has been addressing some of the dirty stuff, some of the ugly stuff, some of the things that you've tried to suppress and push and cover and do away with for so long. God has begun to bring some of that up in your, in your life, and he's begun to bring it to the forefront, and it's some things perhaps that you've been thinking through and you've been wrestling with. How do I, how do I get rid of some of those things that I've done in my life? Well, God goes on and he begins to show for these people how it had cost them to wander from God. Look at what he says if you continue on through, through, uh, through chapter 1. Look down in verse 7. Look at what he says. God says, your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. See, there's always a cost to our rejection of God. He says, your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It's desolation. is overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion, this is a reference to his people, is left like a shelter in a vineyard like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had, led, had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Hey, this would have been the worst for these people. I mean, Sodom and Gomorrah, I mean, come on. It's like for us, you know, you mentioned some of the great names of our heritage as America. You mentioned George Washington. You know, what do we picture? Crossing the Delaware. Dun, dun, dun. You, know, you mentioned some of the great, Abraham Lincoln, some of those great people in our, in our nation's uh, uh, history. Uh, even all the way back to Christopher Columbus. Look at some of the great inventors, you know, uh, that, that, have, that have dotted the landscape of our country. Thomas Edison, many, many names. We, 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 those names immediately conjure up great feelings. Well, for the people of Judah, you mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah. Much the same, but with a twist. Immediately, it would conjure up feelings, but not of good. It would be conjure up feelings of, of tremendous evil, of great sin, of wickedness, of rejection, rebellion against God. And here, here's the cost for their sin. <laughs> Verse 9, he says, Unless God would have chosen to leave us a few survivors, a remnant, we would be just like Sodom. We'd be just like Gomorrah. We'd be no different because of our rejection of God. Here, here's the interesting thing. They were still going through the motions with their worship, even though their heart was disengaged. Their heart was not in gear, but the actions were still rolling on. It was like a car with no engine that continues to coast. It's, it's as though it's riding down the highway at 70 miles an hour. Somehow you reach in and jerk out the engine and it coasts for another two miles. That's what these people were doing, going through the motions. Look at what God says if you continue in chapter 1. Jump down to verse 11. God says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? He says. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, he says to his people, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? What if God looked down to what we do on a weekly basis as a church? And what if he called all of this that takes place on a Sunday? What if he just said, you're just trampling my courts? Why do you even do this, people? That's what he's saying to the people of Judah. He says, bring your, verse 13, bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. In other words, I, whenever you put your sin and you try to cover it as a veneer with, a, with some superficial act of worship, I, ca I cannot stand that anymore, God says to his people. Look at what he says in verse 14. 
I hate your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. That is a tremendous statement of God, those verses, because what he says is is that sin and superficial worship cannot exist together. They just can't make it. These are God's people he's talking to. And so God lays out the indictment because he's a God of grace. He wants them to respond. He lays out for them the cost of their sin, and he begins to detail for them specifically how their hearts had strayed. These people, God's people, were absolutely bankrupt in his sight, but there was hope. And the hope would come in the form of an invitation God would give. Look at what he says. Let's jump down to verse 18 for the sake of time. Verse 18, God says, come now, And let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. This verse was an invitation of God. Look again at what he says in verse 18. It begins with a word of invitation, come. Hey, listen, if you put food on the table and you tell me to come, I'm coming. <laughs> you know, if you open up a whole big gigantic you know, a, a, a group of, of gifts and everything that's out there and you say, hey, Brooks, come, 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 come. I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Why? Because it's an invitation. And that's what God says to his people here. He is inviting his people that he has just absolutely zeroed in on and he's bullseyed their sin and their rejection, their rebellion, and he's nailed it for what it is. And he's looked at them and said, can't you see how this has cost you? I mean, you are bankrupt and you are, you are dying in your sins. You are not even, even close to what you desire to be as my people. Here's how it's cost you. Your, your fields are desolate. You're like Sodom and Gomorrah. You're on the verge of being just like those people from so long ago. But I got a deal. Why don't you just come? And he gives an invitation. An invitation may be similar to what he offers to some here this morning who are in a similar situation. And then he says, let us reason together. That's an interesting phrase. (laughs) Let us reason together. It's almost as though God says, you know, just pull up a chair puts his big godly arm around him, and he says, let's just look at this thing from, a, from, from j- just pure logistics. Let's just look at it from a, just a simplistic perspective. Let, let's just reason about this. Where else are you going to be made clean? Your festivals, they're not working. Where else are you going to receive forgiveness? By following the pagan idols of the people that live around you? By seeking a king just like the people that live around like you did years ago? No, no, no. Those things aren't going to provide forgiveness. They're going to make you white. They're not going to give you cleanness. They're not going to give you anything to make you right with me. So let's just reason. Who's going to give you what your heart needs? And God says, I will. Though your sins are like scarlet. I hope to wear a green shirt today. I couldn't find one, so I wore this one. <laughs> Some of you have a red shirt. Mike, can you stand up for just... I don't ever do this. Mike, red shirt. Okay, that's the only reason I want Mike to stand. Okay, Mike, please. Red shirt. You look at that red shirt. If you could look at it closely under a microscope, you wouldn't even need a microscope. What you'd find is, is that there are threads that comprise this thing that we call a shirt. Every thread has been dyed red. And that compilation of red threads makes for us what we call a red shirt. Are you with me? God says, though your sins 
plural, are like scarlet. In other words, your compilation of sins individually, where you rejected me, where you did your own thing, where you said something you shouldn't have, where you did something that you shouldn't have, where you went your own independent way. You take all those sins, red as scarlet, and you compile them together, and what they build is a sin-stained life. Like threads make a shirt, sins ruin lives. But God says, though, your sins are like scarlet, individually comprising a life that is stained, that is, re- that, that is uh, in rebellion to God, that is, that is separated from God. This is where it gets good. He says they will be as white as snow. I want you to follow me here as we move through a little bit more of Scripture. As snow falls and covers the ground, God says, I will cover your sins in the same way. Though your sins be like crimson, as red as crimson, they will be like wool. Again, a picture of a covering. How does God do that? He does it through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me get you to flip ahead with me, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 1. John, chapter 1. In John, chapter 1, Jesus' ministry is basically being inaugurated. It's beginning. John the Baptist, his cousin, from a human perspective, is introducing him to some degree, you could say, to some of John the Baptist's own followers Notice what he says, what John the Baptist says about Jesus. What he he says to introduce him. John chapter 1 verse 29. It says, the next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, that's what he called Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't just cover it. Isaiah says, quoting God, that the day will come whenever your sins will be will be uh, uh, as white as snow, like snow that covers the ground. God's forgiveness will cover your sin. John paints a new picture. He says as he looks to Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God. There he is over there. There he is, the Lamb of God. Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God. Who does what? Who takes away, doesn't just cover it, but he takes away the sin of the world. Psalm chapter 103 tells us that as far as the sin, as far as the, the east is from the west, so far has God removed our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, you can't measure east from west. It goes on and 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 on. As far as the east is from the west, the psalmist says, Psalm chapter 103, he says, so far in that same amount has God removed our sins from us. Though your sins individually comprising a sin-stained life are as red, are as crimson, are, 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 are stain, have stained your life to such a degree, they shall be white as snow, covered by God's forgiveness, wiped away by the grace of God demonstrated through Jesus Christ. Which brings us to a simple principle that I want to lay out for you this morning. Jot it down and we're almost done. And the principle is this, that through a relationship with Jesus Christ, your sin, our sin, The sin of every person who's ever lived is covered and removed. Covered and removed. And might I add to this, and replaced. 
your sin through Christ is covered, it's removed, and replaced. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture. Verse 21, the last verse of that chapter. Just listen as I read. Paul captures what Jesus has done for us, and he says, He made him, he God the Father, made him God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin or to become sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You, Christian, who's turned from your sin, the Bible calls that repentance, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you've come to him in faith, you've surrendered your life to him, God has covered your sin, he's removed your sin, he'll hold it against you no more. Romans 8, 1 says there is no condemnation against you now. God's wrath has been appeased on Christ on the cross, but he's also replaced it. What has he replaced that sin with? He's replaced it with his own righteousness. Because Jesus became sin on your behalf, he did so so that through faith in him, his righteousness can become yours. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through Christ, our sin is covered, our sin is removed. But as we see in the New Testament, it's also replaced. The book of Zechariah, you don't have to turn there, but as we begin to close in the book of Zechariah, we see a scene much like a courtroom drama. It's captured for us there as the scene unfolds. The high priest by the name of Joshua, not the Joshua of Joshua and Caleb in the Old Testament days of conquering the land of Canaan, but a different Joshua now years later. This Joshua, the high priest, stands And he he stands in the presence of God, but he is also being absolutely accused and condemned by the enemy, by Satan himself. And I want you to listen as I read here. Don't turn there, but just listen. You can jot it down and go there later if you'd like. Zechariah chapter 3. But I want you to listen because in this particular scene involving Joshua the high priest, we see this whole principle laid out for us. That sin can be covered, removed, and replaced by the righteousness of God. Zechariah 3 verse 1, he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now listen to the description of Joshua. It says, now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the Lord. In other words, he stands, he is standing before God in a manner that no one would want to be presented to the God of of the universe. He's standing as the high priest with filthy garments. We don't have to go into the detail of what that meant. Verse 4, it says, he spoke and he said to those who were standing before him, listen to what God says, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, he said to him, see, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head. They clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the picture there is the picture of one who stood before God, stained in sin, one who stood before God unprepared, one who stood before God condemned, and yet because of the sacrifice, because of the the gift of Christ, the gift of forgiveness, because of repentance and because of faith, this same one saw their sin 
covered, removed, and replaced. 19th century Methodist pastor by the name of Ralph Sockman said the hinge of history swings on the door of a Bethlehem stable. And I could not agree more because Christian, if you're able to stand this morning in the sight of a God who loves you, the sight of a God you can stand before him clean and spotless and righteous in your standing, not because of how good you live, but because of the of the uh, of the, the the righteousness that Christ has given to you. Then it all started for you. That first Christmas. And for those of you that have never experienced that kind of forgiveness, those of you that feel the indictment of God, that your life is not where it needs to be, that your sin still weighs heavily upon your life and it's keeping you from a relationship with God, if that's where you stand this morning, then no better day than today to experience the blessing of your sin being covered, removed, and replaced with God's righteousness. When today you turn from that sin and you invite Christ to come in to forgive you and to take over. Come now, let us reason together, God says. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They are red like crimson. They shall be as white as wool. Let's pray. Lord, I look at two groups of people this morning. One group that knows the significance of this day. They celebrate it because they know their salvation is traced back to that manger. When Jesus was born, culminating, beginning his life that would be lived in sinless perfection, given on a cross for their sin. Lord, it's that group that understands the significance of today, a day that we celebrate, a day that we worship you, a day that we can go back to every moment of our lives. And today we know what it means to have not just a white Christmas, but a a clean life because of the beauty of forgiveness, sins that are no longer held against us, sins that are gone, blown away like chaff on a mountaintop, sins that will never, ever be remembered by you again. And then there's another group here this morning. The ones who look across the scope of their life and all they see is the sin. All they feel is that sense that something is not right. Something is missing. They may even be here this morning hoping that coming to church would somehow solve and cover over that that ache that they feel in their lives. They've tried many things. They've turned every direction and it seems as though they can't get away from the fact that something is not right. Lord, what a, what a wonderful day to proclaim the truth. <laughs> that they can leave this place this morning knowing that they stand in your sight clean and pure and spotless. Not because they got good enough, but because the sacrifice of Jesus was appropriated and applied and credited to their lives when they turned from their sin today and invited Jesus in to take over. And so, Lord, I pray for those that don't know Christ. I pray for them today that on this Christmas morning, that they would choose to make the most important decision they'll ever make, to sacrifice and to to, to yield and to surrender their life to Jesus, that they might know not just a white Christmas, Lord, but that they might know what it means to be forgiven every day for the remainder of their lives. 
So bless now the decisions we need to make, Lord. Whether it's a decision that we need to make to praise you for what you've done, to get out of the mundane, the, 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 um, the ritual of what we do as believers and just to worship you with reckless abandon or whether it's to surrender our lives to Christ for the first time. Lord, may we make a decision today that you lead us to make that honors you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.